Yeah, I can just hear Jeff saying amen. Uh, This is our fourth Sunday since we began our exploration of the Gospel of Mark. And as we've said, Mark was the first gospel written, even though Matthew comes first in the order of the New Testament canon, uh, Mark was written uh, about 10 to 20 years before Matthew was written, so uh, about 35 to 40 years after Jesus lived. Now, last Sunday, Pastor Liz offered a wonderful reflection on Mark 2, 1 through 12, Uh, a story where Jesus begins by healing the sin or forgiving the sin of a paralyzed man, and then after bestowing that forgiveness, uh, Jesus tells this paralyzed man to uh, stand up, take up his mat, and walk. And of these two acts, imparting forgiveness, And healing uh, the the paralyzed man, it is uh, that imparting of forgiveness that most shocks and disturbs the religious leaders who are there. Mark 2.7 tells us, some teachers of law were sitting there thinking to themselves, who can forgive sin but God alone? In our reading today, we we hear how Jesus continues to disturb and shock those religious leaders. First, Jesus dines with tax collectors and sinners. Second, Jesus does not require his own disciples to fast, even as John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees are, are fasting. Third, Jesus permits his disciples to violate Sabbath rules by, as they glean uh, grain from the field. And, and that is a violation of the commandment to seek, uh, to, to resist or not do any labor on the Sabbath. And then in verse 27, Jesus uh, confronts his critics, and, he, and, and it's an unheard of teaching. He says this, the Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. And that statement in itself is blasphemous because the belief was, of course, that Sabbath was the day to set aside to glorify God and not humankind at all. But then Jesus goes uh, even further, and he calls himself Lord even of the Sabbath which means he's equating himself with God. If we continue to read uh, in that, uh, uh, from where we were, all the way through Mark 3, verse 6, we would then see that Jesus' next act isn't as disturbing as well. He uh, heals someone on the Sabbath, and of course, a work of healing is work. Now, all of these actions, Declaring forgiveness, eating with sinners, picking grain from the field on the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath, these all prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus is not going to be aligned with the religious status quo. It proves to the religious authorities 
that Jesus is a false and dangerous teacher. And so very early in his ministry, remember, we're only in Mark chapter 2, uh, Jesus' incendiary actions, especially his teachings that counter the norms of scriptural interpretation, set in motion the plot to have him killed. So why are these religious leaders so concerned? Why, why do they see Jesus as a blasphemer? Well, Jesus' actions are not by the book. They are not by the scripture that these religious leaders claim to take quite seriously and rigorously. And though Jesus' actions and teachings are both liberating and life-enhancing, decent religious folk like us prefer more simple, by-the-book, ways of discerning the difference between what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. We like to to look up and and quote those verses that, that tell us clearly what's sin and what's not. But as Jesus says in verse 17, he has come not to affirm the the good religious folk for their scriptural piety. No, he says he's come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. And, And that might sound good to our ears, but really, isn't that backwards? I mean, doesn't God want us to be good? Doesn't God want us to to follow what's written there in in Scripture? Doesn't it matter that we strive to be good Christians? Jesus' actions raised some perplexing questions, both to the Pharisees then and, and to us now. So it seems wise for us to admit uh, from the outset that, that our efforts to uh, know and to belong to God will sometimes call us to accept complexity and mystery and paradox. So here's another uh, couple perplexing questions. What if the purpose of the church, uh, of studying the Bible, uh, of listening to sermons, is not to get our questions answered, but rather to propel us to ask deeper and better questions. And what if it is the questioning and not the answers that are actually the way that we root ourselves into the good soil of God's love and grace? Many churches attract people by claiming to have all the right answers. They have the correct doctrine. They have the clearest formulas to define who is in and who is out, right? And frankly, it's a, it's a good strategy for building a megachurch, from what I can tell. So, so what would happen if a church like ours, you know, we had an advertisement, a sign that said, we don't have all the right answers, 
Join us as we seek to ask better questions. I actually think that might be a loser. (laughs) If you have never heard of Oswald Chambers, you are truly missing out. Here's a thought that he wrote in his personal journal that was later published as a devotional. He wrote, Whenever I become certain of my creeds, I kill the life of God in my soul. Because I cease to believe in God and believe in my beliefs instead. Let me say that again. It is just really important. Whenever I become certain of my creeds, I kill the life of God in my soul because I cease to believe in God and believe in my beliefs instead. The Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' day were nothing if not certain of their beliefs. In the same way that people today call themselves Bible-believing Christians, these Pharisees believed in Scripture. And based on what they read there, they were absolutely certain that Jesus was a false prophet who deserved execution. And so the Pharisees' reaction to Jesus should caution us against reading Scripture too simplistically, without too much certainty that we can immediately comprehend it, its message and meaning. Folks, we've gotten it, we have to admit, we've gotten it wrong so often over these last 2,000 years. And yet, we blunder ahead, don't we? When I was uh, attending seminary, I I ran across uh, this book. I I know you can't read the title. It's called The Positive Bible. Scripture that inspires, nurtures, and heals. Now, doesn't that sound nice? All those pesky, those negative, those, those challenging, those scolding, those depressing scripture passages have been removed from this Bible. Jesus is teaching to sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and follow him. It does not make the cut. <laughs> I felt bad paying for this. <laughs> But I bought it because I knew it would come in handy as a sermon illustration. (laughs) You know, reminding us of what really happens when uh, 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 the danger of misusing Scripture when we only concentrate on a few certain verses, ignoring others, and so missing the overarching revelation of Scripture. And that leads me to something that's absolutely fascinating about a portion of our reading, Mark 2, 23 through 28. When Jesus is asked in verse 24 why he allows his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath, 
He appeals to a story that is told in 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. And if you have a study Bible, I'm fairly certain that the footnote will do just that. It will point you to go to 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6, and of course you'll never do that because who looks at the footnotes? But <laughs> quoting the passage, Jesus says that David and his companions were hungry. And so they entered the house of God when Abiathar was the high priest. And that they ate bread set apart there that only the priests were allowed to eat. Now, it seems, right, that Jesus is using Scripture to counter the attack of those Pharisees, right? There's just one problem. Jesus gets 1 Samuel 21 wrong in almost every way possible. According to 1 Samuel, David was alone. There were no companions with him. The story never, ever mentions hunger. David never enters the house of God. The priest, according to 1 Samuel, was Ahimelech, not Abiathar. And though David took the bread with him, the story never says anything about him or anyone eating it. That is five clear mistakes between what 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6 records and what Jesus says in Mark 2, 23 through 28. Was it a mistake? Was it a joke? Or, or is Mark perhaps just misremembering the story that, that Peter had told him uh, in the 35 years, you know, before he wrote this down. But, you know, of course, Mark could have looked it up, <laughs> you know, cross-referenced, checked his sources. Regardless, either, either 1 Samuel 21 is wrong or, or Mark 2 is wrong, <laughs> and so Scripture can't be inerrant. But with all of those errors, uh, so quick, right in a row, I want to ask another maybe perplexing question. Was Jesus intentionally misquoting Scripture? Uh, I was watching, a long time ago, I was watching a show with my kids called uh, Numbers. Maybe some of you saw it. And, and the mathematician was trying to figure out if, a, if the psychic was truly a psychic or not. And so they were recording him. And so they'd hold up a card, uh, you know, the back of the card, and they'd only ask whether it was red or black. And so everybody's watching this, you know. He, uh, the a psychic gets, you know, three and four, right in a row, gets them all wrong. And then they get to six and to seven and eight, and the psychic is still wrong. And the mathematician says that that is statistically impossible unless the uh, psychic was intentionally getting it wrong. 
And I suspect that might be what Jesus was doing right here. Could it be that that, uh, Jesus is demonstrating to the Pharisees who are so eager to burden people with the details of those sections of Scripture that they think are so important that they are actually so ignorant of Scripture that they do not notice when Jesus intentionally makes one mistake after another. As one theologian says, such matters have not altogether changed. As those who quote a particular biblical passage as a means of condemnation often turn out not to know its context or its relationship to other biblical texts. You know, too often we assume, and I, I certainly did this early on, we assume that those who, uh, who take the Bible literally, who, who quote it chapter and verse, are, actually, are taking it more seriously than those of us who do not. You know, that they have a high view of Scripture. But by way of analogy, what if someone said, well, there's only a few notes of this symphony score that really matter, and then emphasized only those notes and ignored the rest? You know, maybe it's the trombones. They say, you know, only the trombone notes matter. We would not say that that behavior is treating the symphony or the composer or the conductor, or the other musicians with any type of respect. We would say exactly the opposite. And the same is true of the Bible. We need to know the whole score if we are going to honor the true brilliance of the composition the true radiance of God's revelation. What I'm about to say may be new information to some of you, but, you know, the Bible was not written with chapters and verses. Uh, It was broken into chapters in the early 13th century. So a thousand years, more than a thousand years after Jesus. And then it was in the 16th century that verses were added. And I sometimes think we might have been better off if that never happened. Because then we'd be reading the Bible in the same way that Jesus read it. Well, of course, the Old Testament. (laughs) And it's clear that from his teachings and example, Jesus did not wield scripture verses as weapons. Though I certainly think he knew scripture well enough to refute those who would use it to wage war. So here's the takeaway. Jesus refuses to use Scripture to crucify his opponents. But Jesus' enemies did the opposite. And I implore you to think about that. Because using Scripture in a way that places further burdens upon those who are already suffering was the exact opposite 
of what Jesus did. If we are going to be true disciples, if we are going to be on Jesus' side, I'd hope that we read the Bible as Jesus read it, saying no to the religious status quo of using God's word to bludgeon our opponents. Amen. Amen.